This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to the Beansy and Brit podcast. She hits hard. She'll get the six. Grace Harris sets a new mark in the WBBL with a 42 ball run. There's a run out of the bowlers end. Unbelievable. Bold. Sarah Coitz has got the wicket and it's all high fives for the players in the green and gold. Beansy and Brit, who are they? Hello, this is Beamsy and Brit, the ABC's Maiden Cricket Podcast, and it's our job to tell you everything you need to know about what's going on in the world of women's cricket, particularly in the multi-format women's series happening between Australia and South Africa. On the last episode of this podcast, we spoke about the T20 component of the series, which finished 2-1 Australia's way and saw the Proteas get their first ever win against the Aussies in history when they upset the hosts in the second match. Well, on this episode, we're here to talk about the ODI component of the series that finished on the weekend. And funnily enough, that played out the exact same way. It was pretty creepy, actually. <laughs> 2-1 to the Australians, but another upset for the Proteas in match two. That means although the Australians lead the series 8-4, with each of those white ball matches worth two points, that the South Africans have shown progress to beat us in a T20 and ODI for the first time. My name is Brittany Carter. I'm a sports journalist here at the ABC. And with me to give her thoughts on it all is former Australian leg spinner Kristen Beams. Beamsy, we've seen history broken twice now in this series. What have you made of that? Hey, Brett, good to be with you. And yeah, I think it's a really positive sign for South Africa. I think at times we go to talking about Australia in these situations, but I kind of think let's talk about South Africa. They've had a huge amount of change in what they've with their team makeup, they've probably got more change that's coming and they've they've found a way to to be effective. I think it's been a little bit all or nothing, if I'm being completely honest. We've seen mm-hmm. them play some not so good cricket, but we've also seen them play some really good cricket as well. So for a country that's had so much change, you can't help but think, oh, wow, I'm a little bit optimistic about where South Africa are going to get to. And for a long time, I was I had no optimism whatsoever. When you talk about the names that have come out of that team, you go, oh, wow, like this is... This is not good, but they've found some players and they've found some players that can have success here in Australia. So um, tip my hat to them in, in that regard. The swings in momentum from game to game have just been nuts. Like South Africa have either been hot or cold and there's been no in between. And to be honest, as you mentioned, I think I'm pleasantly surprised because we did think it might be a 3-0 whitewash to the Australians in the ODIs because that's their strongest format. And the Proteas, I think, have just been able to capitalise on the timing of this transition phase for the Aussies, not taking anything away from them, of course. They've been excellent in the games that they've won. But it's going through a transition, the Australian team, in its leadership and trying new roles with the personnel that it has and whatnot. So the Proteas have just pounced at the right time to get a win. They won by six wickets in the T20 that they won. They won by 84 runs in a rain-affected ODI. So They've been pretty big wins for that matter to create that little slice of history. I think no matter what the outcome is for the rest of this series now, with just a test match to come worth four points, they'll be proud of this BMZ, won't they? Yeah, and I think they should be. I think to have huge amounts of change and to come to Australia and beat Australia is something that they'd be really happy to do. And I, I think, you know, I can't see how they're going to go about it from a test perspective we haven't seen them play a lot of test cricket it's a completely different format and I'd expect that Australia would dominate through that test match but 
at the same time that you get to the end of a tour and say we came to Australia and we won two games against them in two formats where they hold the World Cup, um, I think you've got to walk away from that and go, hey, we're we're on the right track of where we want to get to. So um, I think it's a really good sign for them um, in this transition phase for them as well. So, we're, you know, every team is ultimately transitioning in some ways. It's, it's yes. just how big that transition is. And I think for South Africa, it's a really big transition at the moment. So, so well done to them. Yes, that's a really good point. All right, well, before we get to our game analysis of each of the three ODIs, we've got some general talking points to get through. Since we last recorded, Ash Gardner won her second Belinda Clark Award, polling 147 votes. Only Elise Perry came close as a runner-up with 134. This made perfect sense to me that Ash Gardner won this award, but seemed to confuse a lot of other people as Perry had already won the T20 and ODI player on this Cricket Australia Awards night. So she'd won both of those and then we were building up to the Belinda Clark Award. And so some people expected her to take out that one as well, considering the women play those white ball formats the most. But for me, it had to be Ash Gardner knowing the kind of form that she's had across 2023. She was the player of the tournament at the T20 World Cup. She took those record figures of eight for 66 in the Women's Ashes Test to get our first Test win in eight years. Like that is significant in the history of this team. And then she took more wickets than anyone else in the women's international scene over the course of the calendar year. So for me, it was obvious it had to be her I think the other thing people seem to forget, Beamsy, is this award is peer voted. So how can you then argue with that when the peers have voted that player to win the award? Yeah, and I think it's a bit misguided when people have an opinion on stuff like that because it's also, it's tricky because the period of time, some series count and some don't. And I think if you don't actually sit down and go, hang on, what were the series that contained, you know, that year period where the award is is won if you actually go through those and and have a look it's exactly like what you're saying you're like okay well that makes complete sense but I think people actually can only really see sort of a few months back and then you know and you you see somebody else winning you know the other awards for the other format so I, I think it's a really tricky one because sometimes it's actually really hard to remember what's happened over the course of a year um, but I think every time you win an award that's peer voted, I think you can be pretty confident that you're the best player in the the country, right? Because I think your teammates are in that bubble. They know um, they're voting for you in that in that regard. So I was exactly the same as you. I think it made complete sense that that Ash Gardner was the the winner there. I think sometimes people go kind of stop and take a breath and go, hey, maybe maybe these guys know a little bit more about who's playing well um, because they're playing for their country. So they're pretty good at voting for who they think is the best player, right? I think it's confusing because we have the 2024 awards. So technically she's won the 2024 Belinda Clark award, but she's being rewarded for stuff she did in 2023. And that's really hard to get your head around, but I don't think they can combat that because the the teams are playing right up to Christmas. They play boxing day for the men's. And so we're never going to see that awards night held in December. I can't see that happening. So I don't know how you combat that unless you change the year that that awards night kind of like so she wins the 2023 Belinda Clark award instead but then we've already followed that pattern for so long I don't think you can do that even because then you'd be confusing people you'd be doubling up on that year um, whatever point you decided to start changing it so yeah I, I don't know how you combat that I think it's just something we have to sit with right 
Yeah, and I think maybe if anything, it's it's how maybe Cricket Australia can kind of cut up how the year has rolled out because I think it's like everyone needs a bit of a like, a, okay, fill me in now what happened over the year because I think if you start to get a bit of an idea of the particular series and where they've been and what they've won and who did really well, it probably paints a nicer picture because um, I think that's, I agree with you, I think it's the only thing you can do. You're not going to change when the awards are, so it's just what education do we as fans have on who's actually had a really good um, year through that period. And I think if you've got that information, you're like, okay, cool. Yeah. I, I've got, I know who I think is going to be the winner because at, at different times you do kind of look and go, all right. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. They did. They had two really good series and it was here and that makes complete sense, but we don't, we don't always get to to have that clear picture. Yeah. Now I was disappointed with the reporting on this as typically seems to be the case with the Belinda Clark Award at the Cricket Australia Awards. Mitch Marsh won the Alan Border Medal and gave a hilarious speech from the heart. So he was always going to get some fanfare for that. He's a loved character in the sport. We get that. But when I think back over the years and remember the time Pat Cummins and Elisa Healy won in the same year, Pat Cummins was all over the front and back pages of the newspaper. Elisa Healy was like 12 to 20 pages in, just a small mention of her winning the Belinda Clark Award. And then there was the time that Elise Perry and David Warner won at the same time. And on one particular newspaper, David Warner was placed a little higher, so he looked taller. There was a bit of controversy around that. It just feels like we can't get the reporting on this right. It's a common theme that the Women's Award isn't treated with equal billing. Now, let me play you this report from ABC show Media Watch on the matter because they noticed this too. And finally, to lighter matters and cricket's big night, the Australian Cricket Awards. Mitch Marsh has won Australian cricket's most prestigious prize, the Allen Border Medal. Cricketers and their partners gathered in Melbourne overnight to celebrate a monumental year for Australian cricket. Yes, the media love a sports awards night and it's even better when a bloke like Mitch Marsh cleans up with an acceptance speech like this. I'm a bit fat at times and I love a beer, but... Um... <laughs> and no-one loved that more than his home state daily. Bit fat and loves a beer. But our new Allen Border medalist, Mitch Marsh, couldn't have done it without WA. Mitch Marsh's win was celebrated from front to back, but he wasn't the only winner that night. Ashley Gardner has underlined her standing as one of the world's best all-rounders after winning her second Belinda Clark Award. Gardner took more wickets than any other Australian woman across all formats last season, claiming 56 in 30 matches. And was her great achievement also featured on the front pages? Uh, no. It was Mitch Perfect on the front of the advertiser, Marsh's moment in the Oz, former cricketer Aaron Finch with his family in the Herald Sun, and the Courier Mail splashed with Usman Khawaja, even though he didn't pick up any awards that night at all. Maybe if Ash Gardner wins the top cricketing gong for a third time, someone in the media will reward her with a front-page splash of her own. Did you notice this too, Beamsy? How do you feel about it? Because it just feels like this keeps happening time and time again. I don't know if I'm maybe just immune to it, but I probably get to the point where I don't even notice it anymore. And I don't know if that's just our expectations are are different because we kind of come to know and love that, that it will kind of be a little bit different. I'm... I'm not sure. I think I just think from a player perspective, you go, you know what? I'm I'm still a winner. I've still, you know, had this really good success, and I, and I have no doubt that from within their group, they they're really acknowledging those successes really strongly. Yeah. Um, 
And I don't know if that's necessarily the right view. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you would, you know, we should expect better perhaps um, in that sense. But uh, yeah, I don't know if that's just my view in, in terms of probably living through it. And at times we really got to check ourselves in the women's game because sometimes we kind of go, yeah, but just think about how it used to be and it's better. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, you sort of still have to work your way through. Like I think in every facet of the women's game through professionalization, there's a sense of like, yeah, but this was so much better than what it was. So um, yeah, maybe we've got to keep kind of pushing a little bit harder in that space to of, of what we're sort of willing to um, accept. Now, if we're talking about great things that have happened and acknowledgement of, of people's um, achievements during the innings break of the first ODI at Adelaide Oval. Former captain Meg Lanning and her vice captain Rachel Haynes sat rather uncomfortably on the back of a ute as they did a lap of honour around the oval before walking a red carpet lined with fireworks on the field up to a podium to do a little Q&A. The moment had been organised as a proper send-off for the pair who retired over the past couple of years in a very quiet fashion which is why I say that they sat uncomfortably on the back of that ute because it was neither of their style to be the centre of attention like that. But they went along for it to appease us, the fans, so we could say a proper goodbye and thank you for all that they've done. The Aussie team who was supposed to be preparing to bat stayed on the field to watch this and I think that was just a bit of a mark of respect. But I did have a little chuckle watching Elisa Healy throughout this whole thing because Meg Lanning and Rach were coming along in the ute and she was standing along with her Aussie teammates and she started bowing down, playing on their embarrassment of the whole thing, I suppose. She's such a character, but Lanning was just, yeah, cracking up watching her. So that did make me laugh as well. You know Meg Lanning well. She looked absolutely mortified by, I guess, the grandeur of of all of this. Would that have been the case? Do you think she would have been a little bit embarrassed? <laughs> it actually, it's funny when you're watching that because I, I think the same thing when they do it in footy and the, the retired players go around and I'm always like, I really hope those seats are like bolted down to the back of that tray, right? Like that's my first view. So that like that's what that I want that to be my first question to Meg of like, did they actually have proper seats stuck down? Because that's where my head goes. But yeah, it'd be a really interesting one. She is somebody who's been so incredibly humble across her whole career that I can only guess that she was mortified, right? I mean, I hope she buys a ute. I mean, I hope that's the outcome of the retirement lap that she's like, actually, this felt like a pretty nice ride. Maybe I should get a ute. Like, I just think that why not? Um, but I thought it was it was really nice. It was actually really, I enjoyed the humour of Elisa Healy as well. I thought that was um it probably made it nearly more comfortable that they were kind of, you know, she was getting down and, and bowing to to those two players. But, you know, I think it's a great acknowledgement of, of two wonderful players that, you know, it's probably pretty unique that you're going to have a captain and vice captain share that kind of moment in, in their retirements to do that together. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that it's one of those things you look back on and you go, oh, that's so cool. But at the time you're like, oh, I'm a bit mortified. I'm on the back of a ute just trekking around the outside of Adelaide Oval. So, um, yeah, but bless her. I'm glad she did it. Like, cause she, I'm sure that you would have the opportunity to be like, eh, I don't want to get in the back of a ute and drive around Adelaide Oval. So I'm glad she did it. I love that you're thinking about safety first before anything else, by the way. <laughs> Is that the mother yeah. in you? 
Yeah, I think that might be the parent in me, Britt. Like I'm, <laughs> my head goes straight towards safety. Like there was no seatbelt on there. I wonder how fast they were going. Like I'm, I'm thinking about all the things that have no um, significance at all. But it was cool. I actually really love that about grand final day. And I know that it's different. It's a different sport and it's all of those things. But it's probably one of those things from an AFL perspective that I actually sit and really enjoy um, and seeing those moments where players are sat side by side with teammates and, and going around and, and having that one final lap. I, I really like that. So um, I haven't seen it before in cricket, but I, I like it. Felt very Aussie as well in the back of a ute. <laughs> can imagine anyone else from outside of Australia tuning in and thinking, what is going on here? Like, what are they doing? But Anyway, uh, great to honour those players. Now, I've already had one semi-rant on this podcast about the Belinda Clark Award, so I'll try to keep a lid on this one. But there was a gaffe from the Cricket Australia chair during the Q&A that did rub me up the wrong way. This is the man who was supposed to be at the very head of the sport and he just couldn't get their names right. Have a listen. Cricket Australia uh, to acknowledge uh, not just these players but this team. Uh, I think this Australian women's team is one of the greatest sporting teams this country's ever had. And to have that... To have that, uh, you have to have some very special players. And by my side, we have them. Uh, We have, I think, in Meg Lanning, uh, one of Australia's great sporting leaders, incredibly gifted batsman, and uh, Leah, um, who... It's, I, sorry, Rach. <laughs> Rach, sorry. <laughs> Oops. Um, Rach Haynes, who I think not only is a left-handed batsman, but across cricket is one of our greatest cricketers we've ever produced. A slip up there from Baird who must have got Rach mixed up with her partner, Leah. We all make mistakes, but for me, again, I just cannot see something like that happening in the men's game. On a more positive note, Meg and Rach headed upstairs after all of this to the ABC box to appear on our grandstand cricket coverage, where they were asked by Quentin Hull whether they missed playing for Australia. And I think with their answers, you could tell it was clear the demands of their leadership roles had been too much to deal with in the end. So I'll play you some of that now. When you get to a day like today and you're still playing cricket and you see the the gold of the Australians go out there, do you th- sort of think, oh, I could still be doing this? <laughs> uh, if I could just walk out there and bat and not have to do any <laughs> of the training and meetings and everything else that goes with it, I might think about it. But, uh, yeah, I still love the game and, and enjoy playing, but just not all, the, all that comes with it. Perry pushes into the offside, no run. What about you, Rach? Your, are your pangs there well, still? Well. No, I haven't had that urge yet to, to want to get back out and and bat and, and play. I've, I've had a, a couple of requests, but, um, yeah, I've, I, was, I was ready to finish when I, I retired. I um, was able to enjoy a, a lot of success, but I, the tank was well and truly empty for me. I, I think I just, um, yeah, got to the end of that Commonwealth Games and knew that I didn't have that desire to, to want to put in at the, the level you need to in, in international cricket. You get found out pretty quickly um, if you, your heart's not in it or your mind's not in it. So... Yeah, it was really nice, I suppose, to go out on that high of the Commonwealth Games and, um, yeah, finish playing in in Big Bash a a couple of months later in Australia and sort of go back around and and be able to say goodbye. But, yeah, there's certainly been a couple of pitches I've walked past and thought, geez, that'd be nice to bat on. But, but yeah, haven't had that uh, desire to to want to go out and play. This was a great insight, I thought, Beamsy, into how much of a toll 
the responsibility and the workload of the captaincy and vice captaincy takes and how much it has been of a workload for these players to sustain the level of success that Australia has had since 2018, since the end of 2017, um, after they had that World Cup semi-final exit and really decided this was going to be a line in the sand, let's do things differently from now. So they have been so successful from then. But a lot of it has been the heavy lifting of these two players to get them there. And, yeah, it just makes me think about the sustainability of having a player in that role for such a long period of time because Meg did it for almost a decade and you can just tell now that she's absolutely spent in that regard. Keen to play for her state and T20 leagues, of course. She's happy to have a hit, but, yeah, not in a leadership position, not interested at all. Yeah, I think we can only guess how much work goes into to being a captain of a, of a team and I think it's so much more. I think we get to see the on-field and go, yeah, like that's pretty, yeah, move the bowlers, yeah, fielders, yeah, all good. And, and we don't really get to see everything that goes behind the scenes. And um, I, I think there's a, there's a good talking point in there around, you know, what does it look like for the future? You know, there's all the, you know, if we look at the, the men's team and there's a test captain and then where does ODIs and T20s, you know, do we see multiple leadership positions to give players a break into the future? Is that one way of, of trying to kind of share the load a, a little bit more? Um, I think, I think there's some merit in that um, because I think it is a is a lot. And if we think as well about how much cricket has changed during that period of time, I mean, when Meg would have started and took over the captaincy, how many games of cricket were they playing in a year versus how many days away and on the road and playing cricket it, it is now? So, you know, that has, that has sort of increased. So not only has the responsibility increased, but actually you're away a lot more and there's a, there's a lot more into it as well. So, I hope it's something that they kind of look at and say, well, you know, what is the right amount of cricket? How much How much work is it being into being the captain as well? Um, yeah, uh, it's a really hard one, I reckon, because, mm. like, you want a captain and you want to do that and you'd want to do every format, but to do it to the best of your ability, you know that you're probably going to burn yourself out. Yeah, yeah. Shelley Nitschke was asked whether she thinks there will be a separate test team, a separate ODI team, a separate T20 team in the future in one of the press conferences after, I think it was the third ODI at North Sydney Oval. And she said, I think that's naturally the evolution of the game from here. We'll get there at one point, not now, but maybe in the future. Yeah, look, I I think that'll sort of be a natural evolution as the game continues to grow. Um, and certain players become a bit more specialised in certain formats. As you said, like Gracie's probably one at the moment that just this series has come in for the T20s. Um, so I, I think as the game continues to grow, there's more opportunities. We see that, uh, you know, there's a domestic three-day game coming up as well. So I feel like as more opportunities um, come up, then, then that sort of thing's going to be a little bit more commonplace over the next, you know, however long, two, five, ten years or that. I, I think that'll be the evolution of the game. So you talking about separate captaincies doesn't really surprise me either because that's kind of the same vein of thought that these players can't do it all and the demands are getting greater. So at some point we may see a completely different team for each format. Now, our next talking point is a sad one. It's been announced that Lauren Cheetah will be taking a break from cricket to deal with a second instance of skin cancer, this time removed from her neck. I was quite upset when I read this news. Lauren is one of the nicest people in the game and has already had a number of setbacks around injury. She's also had a skin cancer removed before. 
We saw Lauren return to the Australian team for the first time in at least four years for the test against India this summer, and that was amazing to see her back out there. Now we know, obviously, she won't be in the test at the WACA because of what's going on with the skin cancer. I just really felt for her, and she has not had an easy ride at all in cricket, the poor thing. No, it was exactly the same. I felt so sad to hear that news. I I think somebody who has had to toil so hard to get back to, you know, full fitness and to to have gone through that, you know, no one should go through cancer in their life. Um, and this is the second time that she is going to have to to work through that one as well. But, yeah, I just felt an overwhelming sense of sadness for, for somebody who's such a great character of the game. Um, but I think at the same time, I think she's such a fighter that, you know, I think in, you know, we'll be, we'll be talking about her being in the Australian squad in the, in the future, um, which I just think says so much about her character and the, the way she goes about it. Um, and I was so pleased to see her get that opportunity in the, the test in India. I think that was, that was one of those really cool moments having probably had the opportunity to be in a squad with her, you know, a long, long time ago. And she was so young to, to see her get an opportunity and, and be like dominating um, through the WBBL in the lead up to that. That, that felt like a really cool moment for me. Yeah. Oh, well, we send our best wishes to Lauren and we hope you get well soon. Two more key announcements I really want to touch on quickly in recent days. First was the announcement of the test squad to take on the Proteas at the WACA. So we know Lauren Cheadle won't be there, but we do see the bolter that is Sophie Molyneux making her way back into the team. Almost a similar story when we talk about injuries and, you know, falling out of favour of selection. Soph missed the 2022 Ashes and the World Cup because of injury. She's had foot injuries. She's done her ACL. She's had a number of things go wrong for her. She lost her national contract. She comes back into the team for the first time in a while. Do you feel some sense of pride about her getting the call up here, knowing that she has, of course, been doing quite well with the bat and ball as an all-rounder in the WNCL, but in that Governor General's game, I think that was her real opportunity to show the selectors, I'm ready for this opportunity again now to get into that senior squad, 59 runs and a wicket in the team that you were coaching. It was supposed to be a warm-up match against South Africa, the Governor-General's 11. Uh, The Governor-General's 11 did beat them. So first off, it was a great win, but then to see Soph get the call-up from here, does that fill you with a sense of pride? Yeah, I mean, I I think Sophie Molyneux was a big reason that the the team won that game. I I think the way that she led, I think the the way that she controlled, she is a player who's in really incredible form. And I think even just to come back from the injuries and play state cricket is probably like something that you go, wow, that's really cool. But I think now to, to get this call up and I, I think it speaks to how she's an incredible talent, right? Like I think people were surprised when she lost her contract, she lost her contract, you know, because of the, the injury. I think everyone sees her as a player that is going to play a lot of cricket for Australia. She's just had um, horrible luck from an injury perspective. So um I think she's in their best 11 from a test perspective. I'd be really surprised if she wasn't selected in in that 11. I, I think that she's come back. She's well really well in a WNCL level. I think she's got so much to offer. Um, I think she she can cover all three facets of the game. Um, I'd really like to see her selected in that test and, and hopefully get a contract next year as well. Mm, well. Fingers crossed that happens. The second key bit of news I want to run past you is that 
There has been announcement that there will be a three-day green and gold match played at Karen Rolton Oval in March. As reported by Laura Jolly on cricket.com.au, it will feature 26 players split across two teams. One will be captained by Heather Graham, the other Charlie Knott. And although most of the Cricket Australia contracted players will be busy in the WPL, um, we will see those like Kim Garth, Alana King and Darcy Brown taking part in this. So we've been talking regularly ever since we started this podcast about our desire to see more test cricket played by the Australian women's team. And while there are no plans right now to bring in a Red Bull domestic competition to kind of help them prepare for that, this does seem like a step in the right direction. And I also think it's due opportunity um, for someone like Heather Graham, who (laughs) has toured with the Aussies everywhere but barely got on the park. So the opportunity now to captain one of these sides and actually get out and play I think is a good thing. And this may prepare the next generation of the Australian team better for what's to come in Test cricket. Yeah, and I think that's we've had so many conversations around you can't get good at a format until you play more of it. Um, how realistic it is to be playing lots more test cricket at an international level. Like it's it's probably not super realistic given how busy the schedule is. So this feels like a really good middle ground is three-day games, you know, for players who probably thought their season was going to be done and dusted, now have something to kind of look forward to and, and to have that opportunity to kind of push and you know that selectors are going to be watching this game. I just think it's a really good compliment for people dominating the domestic scene and exactly what you're saying for players who have been in and around the fringes of the Australian team, but haven't had as much content as others. And sometimes we forget that as well. We're like, Oh yeah, it must be so much fun, you know, touring with Australia. And it's like, yeah, but if you're not actually playing any cricket um, that also can pose some challenges as well. So a three day game gives players a really good chance to get some really good content into them um, as well as, just test how some of the strategies and tactics might work from a three-day perspective. It, it is a really nice little um, way forward for, for that format. And, and hopefully other countries start to do that as well. And then we might see the occasional four-day game, but I'm not sure how realistic it is for us to see sort of, you know, the WNCL expanded into another format. I think mm. it's going to be more about these types of games. So you know, you're going to have this one. Could you have another one before the next season starts and and start to kind of build that um, with some players? That would be really cool to see from from my perspective. So I'm really hopeful that it's a really good game of cricket and and everyone walks away with from that and goes, this was a really cool experience. Now, how can we find some more windows to make more of that cricket happen in the future? Okay, well, that was a lot of talking points to get through and this is what happens when we think we're all good to have a week off and wait until the 30 to finish up um, our next record. So, so many talking points to squeeze in. Thank you for all your thoughts on those. Uh, Game one. Okay, Adelaide Oval, Australia win this one by eight wickets. Australia win the toss. Now, I'm cheating a bit. I'm looking forward ahead here. But Elisa Healy has won the toss. In all three of the T20s and all three of the ODIs, are they using some kind of trick coin here? <laughs> like, surely the umpire is bringing it along and it's their coin each time. I just don't understand how you can be this lucky. I mean, you would love to be Elisa Healy's friend at, say, Anzac Day when two ups being played at the pub or something like that, because the fall of the coin is definitely going her way. 
Yeah, you got to take it when you've got it because then you go through these runs as a captain where you're like, you know what, I'm walking out here to do the toss and I actually know I'm going to lose it. So there's <laughs> she's got to ride her luck at the moment because it is most certainly going to turn for her, that's for sure. Let's hope it's not a flip, say, like a horrid run for <laughs> six games. Let's hope it's not whatever. a World Cup. Like, yeah, <laughs> yes. start losing the toss, I reckon, from now on and then just save them up for the World Cup and then win the toss again, I reckon. Yeah. All right, well, South Africa were all out for 105 runs in 32 overs in this match. It took Australia 19 overs to reach the 106-run target. This was a poor effort from the Protees, if we're honest with the bat. I was listening to the ABC coverage in the background of this game, and the experts were not impressed at all with the shot selection. It was a very slow scoring rate. A lot of wickets fell quite quickly. The top four batters for South Africa went for a total of 11 runs, but what didn't help them was the injury to Marazan Cap, who had to retire hurt on 50. She was hit on the elbow by the ball. It was so unlucky. just happened as she was running between the wickets. A fielder threw the ball into the stumps and it just happened to hit her. When I saw this happen, I thought they were a goner. Like that was it. I think she was their one shining light. So what did you make of this innings, Beamsy, from the Proteas? Yeah, I just think that it, they looked like they struggled to to have a really clear method on how they wanted to to go about it. And and sometimes that can be the challenge when you go from T20 into this ODI form. How are we going to go? Do we give ourselves a little bit of time? But to me, Cap looked like the only one who was who was really clear on how she wanted to go about it and, and her game. So um, I, I just feel like it was a really kind of big learning curve for them in one innings. Um, and you know that you're not going to get a lot of respite from from the Australians, right? And and they've got so many bowling options. I think they used like eight bowlers through that period, maybe seven or eight bowlers. So you know that you're going to keep getting differences all the time. And you've got two leg spinners in there. You've got swinging ball with shoot and um, Garth as well. Like there's there's not a lot of ease, I think, from a, a bowling perspective. So when you don't get off to a good start, these bowlers can actually just work their way into their business. And, and that's what it looked like. They looked very clinical from an Australian perspective um, when they weren't. The, the South African batters maybe didn't look as clear as to what they were trying to do. Yeah, seven bowlers there. So you're right. There was many options for Elisa Healy to turn to. This felt more like a T20 match in reply. As we said, it only took the Aussies 19 overs to get to the 106-run target. But the opening partnership between Healy and Litchfield did only make 31 runs. How do we feel about this partnership? It looks like it's taking some time to gel is it still the right option? As we, again, cheat a little bit and look ahead, they made 18 runs together in game two. It was at its best in game three with 65 runs, albeit Litchfield was out cheaply again for five and Healy made 60 of those. So I'm not talking about full of the wicker here. I'm just talking about how much both those two made at the top. Is it a case of both of those being kind of a little bit out of form and just happening to be put together in the partnership? Or is it that the partnership isn't working together, Beamsy? No, I think it's I think it's a great long term option for for the Australian women's cricket team, and I I, I just think our expectations are so high because we you know we, when we think about Healy and Mooney together, we we have this like really romantic view of it, right? Like we're we're sort of like oh, our expectation is that they will dominate the power play and have a really amazing partnership. So I think it's just a bit of patience on on our end. I think they will be a really good combination um, moving forward. I like the different pockets that they hit. I think they complement each other really nicely. I think it's just going to take a, a little bit of time for, for them to work into their business together. 
Well, for game two, we headed to North Sydney Oval. Australia won the toss. They decided to bowl, and actually both captains said they would have bowled first had they won the toss. But I wonder if this was the wrong decision from the Aussies because there was some rain about. It did rain a little bit on the wicket, and after there was a break in play and the Aussies came out, um, and, of course, they're batting second here, it did seem like the ball started to skid on at points and it caught them by surprise. So what did you make of that decision? It seemed like both captains were fairly keen to bowl first, but I wonder if, yeah, that was just the wrong decision in that moment. Yeah, it's really interesting when both captains say they're going to do it. I I think that says that it's the right decision. Um, I think it's more just your your execution through that might have been more of that question um, mark. For, for them moving forward. So, yeah, I think it's a it's a really tricky one. I think the, the Duckworth-Lewis is a really um, hmm. interesting one as well because sometimes I actually, you know, everyone kind of has this idea that you bat second through um, the Duckworth-Lewis and that makes it easier. But sometimes I don't think it does. Um, so sometimes I actually think you're, you're better to go the other way. And um, so that, that becomes a tricky thing as well. And it depends on whether you're a team that likes to chase or, or not. But... I don't think it's as straightforward with Duckworth-Lewis that if there's rain about that you definitely want to bat second. It just kind of is what it is. Yeah, yep. I think it was um, surprising, though, to see the way the Aussies fell so quickly in this one. But if we look at South Africa for a second, Marazan Cup was back for South Africa, which was a huge in. We didn't know whether she was going to be fit to play this game after what had happened with the hit on the elbow in game one that this inclusion of Marazan Cap was probably the thing that actually defined the game because we saw her make a crucial 75 runs as well as take three wickets. And, you know, early in the South African innings, there was a brilliant catch from Mooney in the slips, right-handed, you know, she's a left-handed player, so it wasn't her dominant hands, but to see Woolvard off for a three-ball duck, I thought, oh, we're on here. They almost had Brits in the same spot there not that long after. But that was the end of the catching highlights for the Australians because they dropped five catches in the field. How does that even happen for this team? They pride themselves on those standards. Fielding is normally something they're so good at. Even Elise Perry was among the drops, and she has been a little bit off in this area this series, which is unheard of. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like it's we again, I just wonder how our expectations are. Like I, I just it kind of felt like, oh yeah, they just had a rough day, right? Like, um, but yeah. it, I, I think that's I think that speaks to how good the team is, that even just like having an off night, whereas I reckon we can watch I we would watch South Africa drops five catches and we'd be like, Oh yeah, they still fielded okay. But it's so interesting that our perspective is so different with the the Australian team because just I think our expectations are, are so high. It just felt like for me they were just a bit off. Um and that's you know that's not a very good expert analysis um to to provide. But it just sometimes you do just watch a team that's just a little bit off and and that was my kind of summary of it. So we know Marazan Cap went big in this game in both aspects. She's a great all-rounder. Does it feel a bit like Marazan Cap or bust for South Africa at the moment? Because we know she wasn't able to keep up that dominance in the next game. Aussies won it. They finished the ODI component 2-1. But, yes, Marazan Cap in this one was crucial. And had she not retired hurt in the first ODI, we don't know what would have happened there. But... At the moment, it kind of feels like there's so much reliance on what she can do with both bat and ball. 
Yeah, and I think it would be really different if Laura Wolvart had gone with her in this, um, you know, in the T20 and, and ODI series as well. I, I think if the two of them had have been going, I think I probably expected Wolvart to be the the leading run scorer from a South African perspective more so than Cap. Um, and I just think that speaks to the evolution of Marazan Cap as well. I, I think we were talking about this through the, the T20s on commentary, but I think she's a player who could actually finish her career as a batting all-rounder and actually play key batting roles. And what that will mean for her career in terms of longevity, I think will be really cool. Um, You know, and I think about a Nat Siver in the same way, who's had some knee problems, you know, do they, you know, where does bowling fit for for some of the great all-rounders? You know, do they kind of nearly flip roles and, and finish career at the back end? We saw Catherine Brunt play more of a batting role for, for England at the back end of, of her career as well. You know, where does Elise Perry sit on that spectrum as well? But I, I just think that for me, I was like watching Marazan Cap and I'm like, oh my goodness, like you could just be a top order batter who doesn't bowl for, for South Africa and, and play for another, you know, four or five, however many years that she wants to play for. And that could be the, the glue that holds this young South African team together as they go through this transition. So I was actually just really excited watching her bat like that and just thinking, this is so cool, because I think she's always had the ability to do that, but I think she's delivering on that talent. She's found the power and the consistency with the bat for sure, and I did remember you saying that, so I was watching these matches thinking, Beansy is on the money here. <laughs> yeah, so the South Africa making 6 foot 229 in 45 overs before rain stopped play, and then the Aussies 149 all out in 30 overs to see South Africa win by 84 runs with the Duckworth-Lewis method in play. It was a huge win for them there. And then as we headed into the third and final ODI at North Sydney Oval, again, Duckworth-Lewis method came into play. That pesky rain around January, February reared its head again. This time the Australian women, though, much more successful and they got the win by 110 runs. It was a totally different game when we look at the way the Australians approached this one, won the toss, decided to bat first, learnt from their mistakes from last time, and they made 277 in their 50 overs. We saw Elisa Healy return to form at the top with 60 runs. Uh, Beth Mooney, of course, was the best with the bat, and she has been so, so good throughout this series for Australia. 82 runs not out. But also Talia McGrath, a kind of return to form for her as well with 44 runs. This would have been a record-breaking run chase for the South Africans had they got there and got the win in this one. But it was just so pleasing to see the Aussies bounce back from a loss like that. And I think the resilience of this team has really been on show in that. In both the T20 format and the ODI format now, we have seen them bounce back and learn from their mistakes quite quickly when things haven't gone right. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I get frustrated sometimes because we, you know, they have a they have a bad day and every other team gets to have a bad day except for Australia, right? So they have a bad day and then we have all these conversations about is the gap closing, which really bugs me most of the time. And then, you know, a few days later we have this game, right? And then we go, oh, right, yeah, they're really good. And it's like for those 
for those of us who are just sitting back going like, yeah, we know they just had a bad day, right? Like it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting one. And and I just thought they were clinical and I would expect them to be clinical off the back of having a bad day. So I just, we're so quick to go to like all of these other storylines and what do they mean? And then, you know, Elisa Healy comes out, leads from the front, makes 60. Beth Mooney, just an 82, not out of 91 balls. And then we, all of a sudden we're like, oh yeah, no, we're, we're back. We're, we're all really good. And then you know, the Kingy takes four for McGrath takes three wickets, Kim Gus swinging, swings the ball and we take three and we're like, oh yeah, they're a pretty good team, aren't they? So it's a, <laughs> yeah, it, it all turns pretty quickly um, in, in that perspective. But uh, yeah, it was actually just, I, I was really nice just watching a really clinical performance. Like that's, that that's the sort of cricket I love watching out of this Australian team where they've got all these different contributors that are, um, that are helping through those games. Um, and they were fun to watch. It was really fun to watch that game. Yeah. Don't hate me. I am sorry. I am a member of the media and I do like to <laughs> to play into the narratives. And there was a video and an article I released this week about that gap. So please don't hate me. <laughs> but I did find it so interesting. Um, not sure if you saw it at all, but it, it was interesting to hear the thoughts of different members of the Australian team because, say, an Elisa Healy and Elise Perry or Beth Mooney were adamant there is no gap. There's never been a gap. And I don't know where you sit on the whole argument about this gap, but then we had players like Phoebe Litchfield who was saying, I've seen the gap. I've grown up watching this team. I know how successful they are, and I know there is a gap there. And so other players like I think you had Talia McGrath, Ash Gardner, Darcy Brown all saying, yeah, there's a gap and it's closing. When you really look at the players when they made their debuts and kind of the careers they'd had before analysing their response to that, it seemed anyone that hadn't been there before the loss of 2017 in that World Cup semi-final, again, that line in the sand we've spoken about, anyone that had debuted after that under the captaincy of Meg Lanning, mind you, believed there was a gap, whereas the players that had come before that and had maybe understood the times where it was harder for the Australians and they didn't get that run of success, um, they were adamant there was no gap. So I think it was kind of this generational divide between two separate parts of the team and the difference in, I guess, leadership they'd experienced throughout the team and the standards that have been set to. Yeah, I think it's like the context of the gap because for me it's like the when we when people talk about gap, it's like, oh, other people are getting better and maybe Australia aren't as good. And I, I just think about it completely differently. Like I think Australia have been so good for such a long period of time and they're still getting better, right? So I think that's what I don't like about the gap. It's like they're still getting better as a team. They're still evolving. They're still leading the direction of the world game and where it's going. I think for me, it's like other teams are improving and they are improving because the Australian women's cricket team have improved and because England and Australia have pushed professionalization. And I think it's actually, I just think it's still every time that other teams get better, it's actually an even bigger compliment to Australia, but it nearly sounds like the gap speaks to a different narrative to that. So um, that's probably just where I see it. I, I just think, you know, Australia have done a great job. The WBBL has made a lot of countries, including South Africa, better because their players come and play in this competition. I think that the it's all just, it's everyone going in the same direction. It's not about one team not going as well and other teams going in another way, if that makes sense. 
That's a perspective I hadn't considered before, so I do appreciate you sharing that. Now, in this innings, there was a funny moment for Alana King, who hit a six but also smashed into her stumps. It ended up being a no ball, so not only did she get a six, she wasn't out and she got a free hit the next delivery. So that was a moment I wanted to mention because I thought it was um, pretty funny. But also, you know, South Africa all out for 127 in this one. I mean, we spoke about the dominance of Marazan Cap. She was out for a duck here. The bowling of Talia McGrath, too good with a catch from Darcy Brown. And I think, you know, three ducks in their innings, one of them golden. That one of Marazan Cap was probably the most valuable, knowing that it has felt a bit like, I'm repeating myself here, but boom or bust unless Marazan Cup goes big with the bat. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, the Kingy, the firstly, the Kingy moment was, it was, it feels like that because that could only happen to Kingy. Like that was just one of those <laughs> things where it was like, it absolutely made sense to me when I was watching that, that it had to be Kingy. But yeah, I, I think so. I, I'm, I think. I'd just like to see more players go with Marazan Cap. I, I think at the moment you think Wolvart's probably not having the sort of tour that she would want to. But, you know, I think I think they can get more out of Brits and I think they can get more out of Bosch. But I think that they're, yeah, unfortunately they're, they're just not kind of pushing the the envelope um, enough um, against, against a quality team. But I think they might get there. I think they maybe need a few more series together mm. and then that might kind of hook them in together. Now, as we head off and as we wrap up this podcast I did want to read you a stat that caught my eye so Alana King you spoke about her four for 26 I thought she was actually a little bit unlucky not to get player of the match here on a couple occasions maybe in the first ODI and in this third one anywho different conversation um, her four for 26 figures in this third ODI were the best ODI figures by an Australian woman's leg spinner since Kristen Beams four for 26 against Sri Lanka in Colombo in 2016, the only previous Australian leg spinner to take four for in a home ODI was Olivia Magno with four for 11 against Pakistan in Melbourne in 1997. So I saw your name pop up on Twitter. That stat was thanks to Hypercost, and I thought have to mention that in this podcast here, BMZ. Well, I'm so glad that a proper leg spinner now has the best figures, um, <laughs> but I wasn't holding on to something with my little, you know, leg spinners that didn't really spin so it makes far more sense that Alana King has the best figures by a leg spinner um and bowled beautifully by the way um so that was really nice to watch so I I will happily move aside for Alana King in every facet that is far too modest of you all right we're done here thank you for listening if you've made it all the way to the end of this podcast we will be back with you of course after the test match at the Wacker I am so excited for that I cannot wait there's going to be so many storylines to come out of the four days and Beamsy we're hoping it'll be a tight match if South Africa somehow get another upset here and win this one they will tie the series eight all whereas if Australia draw the match or win it the series will be ours so just can't wait to see it all unfold yeah Australia is still going to try and win this test match there's no doubt about that and wait for Sophie Molyneux to be in the starting 11 for it I'm calling it now I want Sophie Molyneux in the 11. I love the bold prediction all right I look forward to hearing your thoughts after the test thanks Brit
discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.